The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. I'm excited. Today is the day that we're going to be starting our Life of David series. And you might be wondering, why aren't we doing the book of David? And that's because there is no book of David, uh, that the Bible uh, tells the story of David across several different books. Uh, the, the story of David, the life of David, is the longest narrative of one character in all of ancient, ancient literature. The longest narrative of one character in all ancient literature, the story of David. David is immensely important, not only to history, but all but to understanding Christianity, to understanding Jesus. If you really want to understand everything that Jesus claimed he was here to do and everything that Jesus did accomplish for us, you have to understand the life of David. David's a very, very important person for us to understand. The story of David starts in 1 Samuel. You just read the introduction of David, which is kind of like a male version of Cinderella, uh, if you were paying attention. Uh, and then it goes all the way through 2 Samuel. He wrote many of the Psalms. And then it's kind of told again in First and Second Chronicles. If you've ever been reading your Bible and got to First and Second Chronicles, and then you were like, wait a minute, I just read all of this. And it's because you have. You did just read it all. And it's because our Bibles are weirdly ordered in English. In, in Hebrew, the First and Second Chronicles are at the very end of the Old Testament. So you wouldn't have just read it uh, when you get to it in the Hebrew Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, you get to it at the very end of the Old Testament, and it's like a recap. It's like a last, this is all that you've read as, before you move on to the New Testament. And so it's just meant to be this hope-filled thing, but we, we miss that uh, oftentimes with First and Second Chronicles. Um, just to tell you a little bit more about David, David lived 
in the year 1000 BC. He was a historical figure. There's archaeological evidence pointing toward the, the historicity of David. He was one of the most. He was the most powerful king in ancient in the ancient Near East at the time. He's a really complex dude. He was very sensitive. He was a poet, but yet he was powerful. He was a warrior. He was a giant slayer. He was a musician. He played the harp, but yet at the same time, he was an adulterer and a murderer. David was a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had and a terrible father. He was a complicated man. Now, aren't we all? Aren't we all? I think that as we look at the study of David, you're going to see a lot of yourself in, in who David is and understand more about who Christ is and what David was pointing toward throughout his life. In today's passage, this introduction of David, it's a surprising introduction to David. In this story, we, we learn something very important about all of our spiritual lives, and it's this. Heart character is infinitely more important than outward appearances. Heart character is infinitely more important than outward appearances. Let's dive into the passage. I just want to walk through it, uh, walk through the whole story with you again. So verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn and go. I will send to you, Je- I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now Samuel is this prophet. And prophets go and take the word of God to the people of God. And then they go on the behalf of the people of God and, and go to God and ask on behalf of the people of God. So they're kind of this intermediary person between God and his people. And God is calling Samuel to go and anoint a new king. And that's because the previous king, there was only one other king in the history of Israel before David, and it's a man named Saul. And Saul had revealed himself to be an evil man. It started off nice with Saul. He looked like a king. He was tall like a king. He was mighty like a king, but he did not behave like a king. His heart character was ugly. And so the spirit left Saul, and and God called Samuel to go anoint a new king. Before Saul, there was no king. That's weird. There was a nation without a king. In these ancient days, that was really odd. That's what the whole book of Judges is about. If you look at your Bible in the book of Judges, what you see is this cycle of death that just keeps on happening. It's the people of God recognize that God is meant to be their king, and they submit to him. And then they forget that God is to be the king. They start worshiping other gods, and they, they rebel against him, and God has to raise up a leader to come and deliver the people of God. I've been reading Judges with my kids, which is great breakfast conversation uh, that we have. And uh, every day I start it, and Shepard, my four-year-old, says, Dad, we've read this one already. And I'm like, it sounds like we have, but that's because Judges pretty much tells the same story over and over and over again with different people and, and the roles. And it's meant to teach us this lesson that without a king, each man does as he defines right and wrong for himself. Judges ends with this famous line that says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's chaos. It's anarchy. Just do what's right in your own eyes. It also defines modern morality in a lot of different ways, does it not? You do you. Don't worry about anybody else. Do what's right for you. Everybody defines what's right and wrong in their own eyes. But without 
a God, without a, a moral center to find right and wrong, we have no idea of what is right and wrong. And we actually end up wronging one another often. And so the Israelites pled for a king. God gave them Saul. And now Saul revealed himself to be a bad king. And God has sent Samuel to anoint the new king that he has already chosen. The story of David is primarily about this. The whole story is primarily about the search for the true king. The search for the true king. Here we see the beginning of that search for the true king. And the reality is all of our hearts are kind of going through the same search. We all long for a true king. And you might say, eh, that sounds really you know, primitive uh, to think, I don't want a king. I'm good. I don't want a king. But our search for justice is our search for a true king. Don't you want to see justice in the world? Don't you see the world messed up currently? All of us put our hopes oftentimes that the modern religion of today is politics. So what is the hope for the world? Well, it's politics. Get this person in office, get that person out of office, and the world would be a better place. Well, I just am not... I, I think that politics can do some good, but I'm just not that optimistic about politics. But I do recognize that what the desire is in politics, the reason why we're putting our hope there, is because we care about justice. We care that the world works correctly. We're all longing for a true king, someone who will set the world right again. And those longings point us to Jesus, remind us that a true king is coming back one day, and justice will prevail. He will reign above everything, and the world will be made right again. So the story of David is the story of a search for a true king. So Samuel's off looking for a new king that God has chosen. Where's he going? To the little town of Bethlehem. But he's afraid. Verse 2, Samuel says, how can I go if Saul hears it, he will kill me? And Saul's still officially the king over here. And remember, he looks the bill. He's a big dude. He will kill Samuel if he finds out that Samuel's anointing a new king. And so this is what the Lord says in response. He says, and the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And so God provides a way for Samuel to do this safely. Is it sneaky? Yes, it is. Not, it's not completely dishonest. Samuel did offer a sacrifice there. Did he give all of the information? Maybe not. So Samuel makes his way to Bethlehem, and he finds his way into the home of Jesse. And uh, Jesse has this big family with a lot of sons. And this is where we see the Cinderella part play out. Because Samuel went through all of Jesse's sons, one at a time. And this is what I imagine it being like. It probably wasn't like this, but I imagine it being like one of those bodybuilding contests where the guys come out and they're like flexing. Because that's, that's kind of how it, it, it appears. He starts with the oldest and he works his way down. Because any good father wants to see their oldest son prosper in these days. And so he starts with uh, Eliab. And um, he comes out. And Eliab, and uh, the first thing that Samuel says, the, Eliab must have had real big muscles and a very good tanner, you know, because 
Uh, he comes out, and Samuel says, well, this is the guy. <laughs> Surely this is the Lord's anointed. Look at those biceps. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's the, that's the heart of this passage. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Let me finish the story first. So then Jesse called his next son, Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel, also with muscles slightly less big as Eliab's. Neither has, has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shemaiah pass by him. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Seventh number of completion. So in a Hebrew, this would be uh, someone saying like, and Jesse passed all of his sons in front of him. That's basically what, he, what the Bible says right there. And Samuel says, this isn't it. And so he looks at Jesse, almost like Jesse's been trying to pull one over on him. And he looks at Jesse, and he's like, is this all your sons? Really? Like, that's the number of completion that you put before me? What, is there any more? Because God told me to come here, and that wasn't for nothing. So Jesse says, there remains the youngest. Now, this word youngest, it's, it's not the best translation. It's a hard word to translate in English. In fact, most of your Bibles, if you look in your Bible, there's like a little subnote, and it, it has like a little number. Mine has the number two next to it, and in the, base, in the bottom it says, or smallest. So youngest or smallest. Well, that doesn't sound any better, smallest. The, the word is more like runt. Well, there is still the runt, but he's out taking care of the sheep. You know, youngest is not pejorative enough. We need something that's like a little meaner, because uh, like his dad obviously didn't care for him much. He's the youngest, smallest, he's the runt. But behold, he is keeping the sheep, as Samuel said to Jesse. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Cinderella's out back. Go get Cinderella. And he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So David was an attractive man. He was quite the ladies' man later on in his life, so we'll learn. Um, but he did not look the part of the king. This is not who you would have naturally selected. Okay? So the point is that this is not the one that Samuel would have picked. And the heart of the passage is that verse that says, do not look on the appearance of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Heart character is infinitely more important than outer appearances. Right? We know this to be true. We all know this to be true. We know it intuitively. We know we have so many stories teaching this to us, do we not? You turn on TV, almost every other movie has this as its moral. That heart character is more important than outer appearances. Yeah, it's hard for us to believe. I mean, just to give you an example, we've been talking about Cinderella. Let's swap Disney metaphors um, to Beauty and the Beast. Uh, in case you don't have a young daughter in your home, let me give you a little recap of Beauty and the Beast. The Beauty is a, is a woman named Belle, and she's pursued by the, the handsome Gaston. And Gaston is a 
is a handsome man on the outside, but he's a beast on the inside. Let me tell you a little bit more about Gaston. They have a song about him. No one's slick as Gaston. No one's quick as Gaston. No one's neck as incredibly thick as Gaston's. For there's no man in, ha- in a town half as manly, perfect, a pure paragon. You can ask any Tom, Dick, or Stanley, and they'll tell you whose team they prefer to be on, who plays darts like Gaston. And Come on, yeah, we got it. All right, got a little arm swing in here. Who plays darts like Gaston? Who breaks hearts like Gaston? Who's much more than the sum of his parts like Gaston? As a specimen, yes, he, he breaks into this part. He breaks in and says, as a specimen, yes, I'm intimidating. My, what a guy, that Gaston who has brains like Gaston, entertains like Gaston, who makes up these endless refrains like Gaston. I use antlers in all of my decorating. Say it again, who's a man among men? Who's the super success? Don't you know? Can't you guess? Ask his fans and his five hangers on. There's just one guy in town who's got it all down, and his name is G-A-S-T. I believe there's another T. It just occurred to me that I'm illiterate and I've never actually had to spell it out loud before. Gaston. Well, thank you. I appreciate the laughter over here. Gaston is is this man who's outwardly handsome, but inwardly a beast. Full of himself. And Bell falls in love with someone who's outwardly a beast, but inwardly handsome. And so that's the moral of the story. And we all know this, but it's counterintuitive to how we actually behave. We all get hung up on appearances, on trying to look the part. I mean, no one goes into a job interview worried about their heart. They all go into a job interview worried about their dressing and looking successful and their hair and their clothing and and what they can accomplish and their education and their resume. Do you look put together? Think about how much of your time is spent on managing others' perceptions of you. How much time is spent on setting up your Zoom camera just right, or getting your clothes and your apparel just perfect, or how you decorate your home, or, or uh, what you post on social media, what products you buy. You have a persona that you're trying to communicate in almost every decision that you make. You have a person that you're trying to present to the outside world. Now compare that amount of time to the amount of time you spend thinking and working on your heart. Other people see how we look, but God sees our hearts. Not only this, not only are we obsessed with outer appearances, we're obsessed with other people's outer appearances. This is how we live in the world We make friends with those who look like they might be our friends based on outer appearances very quickly. I think that one of the best examples of this is probably online dating. There's nothing wrong with online dating. And I am going to be very open about the fact that I um, have limited knowledge of online dating. But from what I understand, most online dating works this way these days. And, you know, different one. there's certainly different apps out there. But it's like, throw up a picture, and within like two seconds, you have to decide if you like the person or not, if, if it's worth pursuing this conversation. 
And so you swipe one way or the other. Now, if, if Gaston popped up on your Hinge app, which way are you swiping? As opposed to the beast. Maybe it would be better to make that type of decision in a context where you can get to know someone's heart, where you can get to know them and talk with them a little bit before you have to make that type of judgment call so quickly. Man looks on outer appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Another way to say this is other people see the you that you want them to see, but the Lord sees the real you. Other people see the you that you want them to see, but the Lord sees the real you. Because the heart is the essential you. When the Lord looks on at your heart, it means he knows you. The heart is what makes you do the things you do. Paul Tripp puts it this way. He says, we like to think we do the things we do because of the circumstances around us, but the Bible says that our behavior is a result of how our heart interacts with the situations around us. And so we all put on these metaphorical masks. We got literal masks on this morning, but we all put on these metaphorical masks as well. And God sees through those. He sees through them to every desire, every intuition, every thought, every feeling. Every inclination of your heart is known to the Lord. In Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous speech, I have a dream. This is, the, this is such a great summary of this passage because what he says is he describes this utopia where men are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. King's dream is that we would look at each other with the eyes of God. I think that that's a great description of this passage. And while that is a dream, when you consider the condition of your heart, it might be more like a nightmare. Because if you saw the content of my character left to myself without the the work of the Holy Spirit in my life, you would not want to be my friend. You would not want to be near me. The Bible teaches that the heart is deceitful above all things. And if this is true, how are we ever going to be accepted by God? David's the same way. David ends up being a massive failure. David is anointed by God right here. But if you know about David's life, and I gave you that little precursor, he murders someone. He commits adultery. He's a bad father. He has all of these things. Yet God loved him and chose him to be the king. Verse 13, then Samuel took the horn and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Quick point, you can have the Spirit of God and be used by God in a powerful way and still be a big sinner. That's what we see with David, still a big sinner, yet chosen by God to be used in a powerful way. And what we're going to see over and over and over again in this passage is that David is a foreshadowing of the great king that was to come. David is a foreshadowing of the great king 
who was to come. Because when it says anointed, when it says that he was anointed in the midst of his brothers, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, the word that's used there is he was the Christos. He was Chris. He, he received an anointing, which is from the same word as Christos, which means Messiah or Christ. David was set apart. It's pointing us forward to the one who would come, which is Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, this foreshadowing. Because a thousand years after David, one of his descendants would be born in the little town of Bethlehem where he is found. And that descendant would be the most powerful being in the whole universe. Yet he was made a runt for you and me. While David was found out with the animals as a shepherd, Jesus would be found with the animals in a manger. Jesus wasn't what you would expect as a king, much like David wasn't what you would expect as a king. He didn't come in power and strength, but he came in humility and meekness and gentleness. Like David, the Spirit of God rushed upon Christ And then he was thrust into deep temptation and troubles, just as David did. After this moment, everything in David's life is one trouble after the next. After Jesus received the Spirit at age 30, one trouble after the next. But unlike David, Jesus did not find his throne until the end of his life as he was nailed to a cross. The place, his place of exaltation would be also his place of humility, humiliation. And unlike David, Jesus was faithful to the end. You see, because of the selfishness in my own heart, Christ died selflessly on the cross for me. The body of Christ was broken so that I might be given a new character, a new heart. You often hear that God's love is unconditional. Friends, I have good news for you today. God's love is better than unconditional. Unconditional love says, I love you no matter what you do. God's love is contra-conditional. No matter what you do, in spite of what you do, I'm going to love you because I love Christ and you are found in Him as you place your faith and hope in Him. God's contra-conditional love. He sees the ugliness of my character. He sees the ugliness of my heart, yet he chooses to love me all the same. Isn't it a beautiful thing, the grace of God? What would you do if your friend saw the true ugliness of your heart, yet chose to love you all the same? There's no better love than that, than when my wife sees the ugliness of my selfishness and chooses to love me. It's Christ-like love. He sees you, and he sees you so much more (laughs) opaquely. He sees you so much more clearly than your wife or your husband could ever see you. He sees through everything. He sees through the mask. There is no mask. And yet, he chooses to love you, not because you're so lovely, but because his son, because he loves you, and because he sent his son to die on your behalf. We need more grace in our lives, don't we? We need more ability to take off the mask and show each other the ugliness and have grace. That's called love. 
And friends, I love you. And we need to love one another. Heart character is infinitely more important than outer appearances. How do you get heart character? Let me end with this. How do you get heart character? How do you work on your heart? It's one of those weird things that the more directly you aim at it, the harder it is to work on. Because you say, I'm going to work on my heart character, and then all of a sudden you want someone to notice that you're working on your heart character, and dang it, I'm working on my outer appearances again. It's very hard. You can't really get it by aiming at it. You cannot simply will yourself to have a better heart. And this is really important. This is a biblical lesson that we have to learn. You can't will yourself to have a better heart. You have to be given a a new heart. You don't need a better heart. You need a new heart. Ezekiel puts it this way, verse 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Have you received that new heart? Have you just gone to the Lord and said, you know, my heart's rotten. It's stone. My heart is stone. Nothing breaks me. I'm impenetrable. I don't let anybody pass the mask. I don't let anybody see the true desires of my heart. I have become obsessed with outer appearances. Have you gone to the Lord and said that? Because it's not until you recognize that your heart is rotten that you can receive a new one. You must take your stony heart, your hard heart, and lay it before the Lord and say, God, take it out of my chest and give me a new one. Once you you recognize that your desires are out of whack, that your heart's broken, God draws near to the brokenhearted and he delights to bring healing to those who call on him. He delights to bring healing. Your character improves when your view of God increases. Your character improves when your view of God increases. And when your view of God increases, your view of your own sin, your own selfishness, shame, it increases also. But that means that your picture of Jesus increases because what he died to save you from becomes more clear. So you love him more. Your object of worship is turned from outer appearances to the God who created the universe, who has redeemed and rescued you. And you are enabled to live a life that's more like him and less like you, that's more focused on gentleness and kindness and less on power and exaltation. This is the way that our character shifts. We must change where our eyes are pointed and look at the true king. So let's do that. Let's call on him now. Let's trust Christ for that contra-conditional forgiveness, that contra-conditional love. It's better than unconditional. Let's receive a new heart. For some of you, that might be becoming a Christian for the first time. Maybe you haven't trusted in him for the first time. Maybe you thought you did understand this Christianity thing, and now you're like, I don't know. Have I received a new heart? Today's the day. Let's, let's, Let's trust Christ in that way. And for each of us here, we need a refreshing of our hearts. We need to be reminded to make life not about outer appearances, but the character of our heart, which is far more important. Let's pray and seek him and ask him to make us new 
to breathe his spirit into us as he did David so that we can follow after him. Let's pray. Father, as we seek you today, we pray that um, we'll be encouraged and reminded of your gospel and that any any of those here who don't know you, who haven't experienced the breathing out of your spirit, that they will trust in you, that they'll be given a new heart, and that you'll recreate them from the inside out. Father, help us to be a people of love and contra-conditional love at that. Not just love when people are convenient, but love for people all the time. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.